and welcome to the Rev Series Shares podcast. Here you find the introduction to friendship through David and Jonathan and then the Bible reading which is excerpts from 1 Samuel sharing some of their story and then a further reflection on the text as well, exploring friendship over family but also helping us to think about what it actually means to be friends and family in the church. Something we might think we're good at but maybe not. Do listen along and do check us out on all the usual social media channels, especially our website and Facebook, for up-to-date stuff that's happening around Moncrief Church, in person and online. Thank you for being with us and you are valued and loved. I hope you enjoy what comes next and thank you to Heather for bringing us our readings. I want to give you an intro to the unlikeliest of friends and later on a reflection on their friendship. And I've entitled this The Unlikeliest of Friends because in a way this is what they are. We're so used to them being seen as friends that we can forget their backstory. And it's a bit more like blind date than high school sweethearts. Their friendship was deep and special, soulmates some might say, and certainly David felt the love of Jonathan was even better than that of many women. Now, I'm not making any assumptions about their relationships, and plenty of people do, but I know that their friendship was special and honed through very trying circumstances. Whatever you think, let me give you some background to where we are this week, and then you can make up your own mind about their friendship. Now, to give you context, we need to go back a little bit. And if you want to read it for yourself, I recommend starting around chapter 8 in 1 Samuel. I'm going to give you the short version here. So Samuel, who is a prophet and a judge, is um, the one that everybody has looked up to and followed. um, But they are now getting restless. He's revered. He's respected. His sons, however, let's just say they don't follow in their father's footsteps and are not honourable men. The people, the Israelites, don't want his sons taken over when Samuel dies, and so they come and ask for a king. Other nations around them have kings, and the people decide, well, if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for us. They couldn't accept God as their king and wanted to be like the others, blending in rather than standing out. Sound familiar? Let me share a little bit from 1 Samuel 8. Samuel was displeased with their request for a king, so he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said, Listen to everything the people say to you. You are not the one they have rejected. I am the one they have rejected as their king. Ever since I brought them out of Egypt, they have turned away from me and worshipped other gods. And now they are doing to you what they have always done to me. So then, listen to them, but give them strict warnings and explain how their kings will treat them. No amount of dissuasion works, and they remain adamant that they want a king. So God appoints Saul, who is, at the time, a lovely young man, modest and gracious. He admits that he is from the tribe of Benjamin, which is the smallest tribe, and that he is from the lowliest of the families within the tribe. Interestingly enough, Saul is very tall and handsome, whereas David is initially chosen as the runt of the litter. Saul is appointed to the joy of many and, of course, the jealousy of others. 
He is successful and makes some inroads into the war with the Philistines. But Saul will spend his entire life battling the Philistines. He has five children, three boys and two girls, all of whom are named in the story, which again is unusual. Saul rushes ahead of God on one occasion and is told for his sin that his family line will not remain kings. This is the first time that Jonathan is mentioned. Jonathan is brave and we read his first war story in chapter 14. And we learn early on that Jonathan didn't share everything with his dad. It lived his own life, shall we say. And um, he followed his own path, but with an awareness of God and certainly wiser than his tempestuous dad. Jonathan does almost meet an early death because of his dad's ability to speak first, think later. Thankfully, the people saved Jonathan's life by calling Saul out on his stupidity, to be honest. Again, later, Saul's arrogance and rebellion causes him to drift from God's path and he is reminded again that his successor will not be his son. He doesn't know, however, that it will be David at this point. And this is where David makes an appearance. Initially, he has to play the harp to soothe Saul, Saul's tortured soul. And I wonder if we are allowed to put a name to his condition, but then there's always a risk with doing that, taking what we know now, say about mental health and re reading stories in the light of that. What I would say is that there is evidence of ill health and evidence of bad behaviour, and the two are not necessarily tied together. Mental illness is separate to bad behaviour. Jealousy, envy, anger are the motivators behind his behaviour. Saul likes David initially. He is very fond of him, makes him his weapon carrier, which would be a special role because at the time only the king and his son or sons were allowed to carry weapons. The Philistines banned blacksmiths um, and they would only allow their blacksmiths to mend uh, swords, not swords, sorry, plows, etc., um, for harvest, um, etc. So really very few got to carry weapons. So to be the weapon carrier was a special role. Saul doesn't know who David is, though, until the story of David killing Goliath. And it made me wonder if their relationship, despite the fact that Saul liked him, really was a kind of property over people type relationship. However, David killing Goliath changes things. David's made an officer in the army and Jonathan in a heartbeat swears allegiance to David, an eternal friendship. Eventually, David is married to Saul's youngest daughter, Michelle, and Jonathan becomes his brother-in-law. Saul spends most of the time from making David an officer in the army, um, trying to find ways to kill him. Uh, throwing spears or, sorry, but this is in the Bible, arguing, asking for a hundred foreskins of Philistines for the dowry for his daughter's hand. And David, being David, gets 200. Saul gets more and more jealous of him and more and more determined to kill him. It's hard, though, because as David's popularity grows, um, it makes him harder to kill, in a sense. 
Jonathan remains a strong friend who repeatedly helps David avoid the cruelty of his dad and indeed his daughter Michelle actually also subverts another murder plot of Saul's. Yet Jonathan dies beside his dad in battle and David mourns them both. So we have one boy from the sticks, a pauper if you wish, and we have a prince, although from humble beginnings himself, whose friendship sets the bar for us all. Would we do the right thing, even if it meant going against family? And remember, family in the Israelite community was everything. Your name, your honour, your status. Basically, if you didn't have a family, you didn't belong. Jesus said the greatest love you can have for your friends is to give your life for them. Is that the kind of friendship David and Jonathan had? Our readings today come from the book of 1 Samuel starting at chapter 18, verses 1 to 9. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. And then reading chapter 9 from verse 1. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul. But his father said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, 
David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul and David was with Saul as before. And then moving on to chapter 20, reading from verse 30. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. On that second day of the feast, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him and he said to the boy, run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing about all this. Only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, Go, carry them back to town. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times, with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. Amen. I called this next reflection, choosing friends over family, a tough call. But perhaps as I get to the end of the reflection, I question what it means to be friends as well as family in church. Just to give you an idea of where we end up. But before we get to the conclusion, let's go back to the beginning. We love to put people into boxes, into categories, um, things, anything. We do that. When I started back at work this week, I ended up writing lists and I've got four lists on the go, all based on time. What needs to be done immediately uh, today in the near future and in the distant future? And each list, well, let's not go there. But one thing I have found really helpful in our desire to categorize and put things in boxes is generational characteristics. Now, like everything. There are elements to it that are very helpful. There are exceptions to every rule and we don't all fit in the box that other people draw for us. But 
I want us to use it just for a moment to help us. We have what we call different generations with different titles. And when I studied it a few years ago now, I must admit, I only really had millennials or Gen Ys to worry about. Now we've added in Gen Zs and Gen Alphas behind them. Some of our year groups are quite large and some of them are smaller. Um, I am a Gen Xer child to two baby boomers who came from builders. Each generation has a number of defining characteristics and it's a worthy study to do. And for churches and institutions that really do work across a multi-generational age, it can actually be really helpful to understand uh, the characteristics because it helps us understand how to manage change and conflict and so on and so forth. And maybe one day, you know, I'll get to that with you. But think about it for a moment. Think about the rising age of our presidents in the United States. That's um, a sense of where the older generation builders, for example, got on with it and often from scratch built things back up, particularly after the tragedy of war and the economic uh, downfalls that we had at the time. And they do have a strong track record and usually an unwillingness to let go of control. We have baby boomers and they tend to be the spoilt generation. They've been well looked after by the builders who wanted them to get everything that they didn't get um, and generally just kind of lived life um, in, and enjoyed the, the freedoms that existed at the time. They think that they should be in charge and not the builders. And then we have the Gen Y or the millennials at the younger end. Um, they're seen as requiring too much affirmation and uh, usually a lot of molly coddling. Um, think about when helmets, etc., and all that jazz came in. Um, but they get on better with their grandparents than with their parents and tend to be much better team players. The little group in the middle that I've kind of skipped over is my group, which is the Gen Xers. And really, we are the most miserable bunch. We have a sense of neglect. We are latchkey kids. Um, and we tend to, yeah, we tend to be the most difficult group to get on with. We are the ones who are probably the quickest to go whatever and walk away. We don't really do conflict well. Um, we just we just can't really be bothered with it, to be honest. Um, it's part of our personality. And we tend, unlike the other generations, builders and boomers and millennials, very family orientated. Um, millennials probably got a fairly good balance between family and friends. We tend to be friends orientated. We're not very family orientated uh, um, at all. Um, so uh, we're viewed by suspicion or with suspicion by the older generations um, and generally just ignored or avoided by the younger generations. So yeah, we've never really truly fitted in. And if you're thinking, yeah, I get that, um, trust me, I hear you. But you might wonder about the truth of this. But one day, like I said, maybe I'll take you through the whole lot. The reason I started here though is because for some of us, Choosing our friends over a family is a no-brainer. After all, you can pick your friends, but you can't choose your family. Others amongst you might truly wonder if you could stand against your parents. I remember my mum sharing a story once about my grandfather 
Um, and she said all he had to do was tap on the window with a fork and they would come straight in for dinner. There was no hanging about, there was no delay. You just went straight in, washed your hands and sat at the dinner table. When I was a child, my mum used to tear her hair out because I could never hear her shouting my name. Uh, so she always ended up coming out and dragging me in for my dinner. And I know when I call my kids down for dinner, it's two sex or it's um, hang on a minute, I'll be there in a minute, whatever it is. Um, and two seconds will pass by, a minute will pass by, 10 minutes will pass by, and I'm still waiting for these children to magically appear from wherever. So each generation is different. Our story today sees the coming together of two young men who from the moment they met shared a bond deeper than brothers. Now Hazel shared uh, just uh, two, three weeks ago about Moses and Aaron and a really, really, really good sermon reflection on their friendship despite being brothers. And she wisely perhaps missed the part where Aaron fails as a brother what I didn't find in the story of David and Jonathan was where they let each other down. And maybe there's something there, particularly for those of us who are Gen X, is that fear, that worry or that truth about family letting us down. Indeed, Jonathan repeatedly picks David over his dad. And that's not an easy choice to make. Time and time again, he defends David to his dad. He persuades his dad that, that David is not the bad guy and then provides evidence to David of plots to kill him. Indeed, goes out of his way to protect David. To stand against your family is hard for most people. Even as a Gen Xer, I, first time I stood up to my parents um, as a bullshit teenager, you, you know, it's terrifying on one level. But in those times where family was the foundation of community, it would be unheard of. We know from stories in the Old Testament, the place of the firstborn, Jonathan as the oldest should have succeeded Saul to the throne. But we know that that couldn't happen because of Saul's actions. Indeed, God says that he regrets making Saul king. Jonathan, in a conversation that we read in chapter 28, admits freely to David that he knows he won't be king and that David will be, and he's okay with that. He will happily serve alongside him. Now, my brain is telling me it's chapter 23, but anyway, it's certainly in the, the run of those chapters. Jonathan's identity is tied up in his father, yet his willingness is to become nothing but a friend of David's and to serve David when he's king. From the moment he met David, he pulls him into the family circle. And yes, indeed, in time, they become brother-in-laws. But that wasn't part of Jonathan's plan. That's just what happens. Jonathan is the kind of friend that most of us dream of. Always there for us, always on our side, always willing to go the extra mile or face the wrath of another in order to protect us. And the line between family and friend is blurred for Jonathan. And I think it's this blurring of the line that helps us understand something Jesus says in the New Testament. Now, Jesus says something really shocking in this passage I'm going to share with you. Not unusual for Jesus, but this one would have sent shockwaves through the listeners. Listen to the word of God from Matthew 12. Jesus was still talking to the people when his mother and brothers arrived. They stood outside asking to speak to him. 
So one of the people there said to him, look, your mother and brothers are standing outside and they want to speak to you. Jesus answered, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he pointed to his disciples and said, look, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does what my father in heaven wants is my brother, my sister and my mother. Many of us will say that our closest friends, our dearest friends, are like siblings. Whether it's a sister from another mister or a brother from another mother, we will pull that friend into that family relationship. Jonathan did that the moment he stripped off his robe and weapons, etc., and gave them and covered David with them. And Jesus does it in that text when he says, as his disciples, we are as much family to him as his own brothers, sisters, and mother. Sometimes we might have to make tough calls and our friendship might outweigh the needs of our family. And I don't really think anybody here would argue against Jonathan's actions, how he helped and supported David uh, to the detriment of what his dad wanted to do. However, what Jonathan didn't do is cut off his family. He didn't abandon his dad in his hour of need. He worked hard to protect David. Of that, there's no doubt. And his dad knew it and his dad hated him for it. Yet Jonathan remained faithful. And I can only imagine how hard that was. We are friends, maybe not as close as David and Jonathan, but reading the gospel text in the light of the friendship that we see through David and Jonathan, who both follow God's call on their lives, it makes me realise that our friendship should be more. As we welcome fellow disciples, they are friends and therefore family. We should spread out our cloak of welcome without judgment. And they are as important to us as our own brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. Jonathan loved David and he also loved his dad. Jesus says elsewhere that he calls us friends. Here he calls us brothers and sisters and even mother, although not many of us want to wear that particular moniker. I suppose for me, the story of David and Jonathan, their friendship, makes me question the value I place upon friendship. I was open at the beginning of this series about the challenge I have to comprehend friendship, and as a Gen Xer, I certainly have issues with family. But the older I get, and indeed as a parent myself, I realise that John Donne is right when he says that no man is an island. Within the Christian church, though, Sadly, too often we live as acquaintances and not as friends. Heaven knows I don't know everyone's name and potentially I don't know yours, but I do know that together we worship the same God. I know a lot more here in Moncrief than I perhaps did anywhere else because of the opportunities to catch up. I love that Terry speaks to Lisa most weeks in the office and when he doesn't call, he's missed. 
I love watching the camaraderie in the kitchen for those who are on the tea rota, week by week, different people all interacting, laughing and working together. I love seeing the support offered and the way that we reach out to one another. I know that we miss some and there are others that we mourn. And there are those perhaps, if we're truly honest, that we have to still truly welcome into the fold. What I have always believed is that first and foremost, we should be family. And I know that not all families get on. Heaven knows mine doesn't. So why should anybody else's? And why should the church family also always get on? But maybe, maybe I've been missing a trick too. Maybe, just maybe, we are meant to be more than family. We're also meant to be friends. And I think Jesus calls us to be both. There is a special relationship in being a sibling, but not all of us are siblings. I'm very fortunate. I have two sisters, and sadly, I have one sister who died of cot death. I, I don't have any brothers. I have to say, when my first child was born a boy, my first thought was, I don't know how to look after a boy. So, you know, there is that whole sense of perhaps siblings isn't the only image we should use. But we can all be friends in that I am a friend to another and others are friends to me. So we can all be a friend and have friends. And the challenge and the gift that we maybe need to explore is, yes, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, but are we friends? Can we truly say that we are friends and that that friendship within the church looks anything like David and Jonathan's, or like Jesus and his disciples. And what does it mean to say that we're not just brothers and sisters in Christ, but we are friends? He is our friend, and we are his friend. Jonathan gave his all for David, and Jesus gave his all, his life, for each and every single one of us. I call you my brother or sister in Christ. And I love you like family, but are you my friend? Am I your friend? And I want you to think about that for a moment and just ponder it. I'm hoping it's a positive outcome. And I don't just mean for me as an individual, but when we look around in church, when we look around in our Christian communities, when we look at those who we travel this faith journey with, do we see just brothers and sisters in Christ? Or do we see friends? And not acquaintances, but friends. And it's wonderful, truly wonderful to be a brother or sister of Christ. We do, it's a gift. We don't earn it. There's nothing we can do to earn it. But friendship. Are we good friends to one another? Maybe. Just maybe if the church really valued friendship a whole lot more than it does we wouldn't be in the mess we're in today i do want to be your friend i might not quite know what that looks like but i want to be your friend god bless you and the peace of christ be with you amen
Thank you for listening once again and I look forward to sharing with you next week where we explore the disciples' relationships as a group of friends. We're hoping to do it a bit differently so who quite knows what it's going to sound like next week but hey, every week is an adventure. I hope you have a blessed week and know that you are a friend as well as a brother or sister. God bless and see you soon.